Could you have faulty towers without faulty? Could you have keeping up appearances with no hyacin? Only Fools and Horses sans Del Boy. One of those scenarios almost happened. Stay tuned to this, the latest edition of the Sitcom Club, to find out which. Well, I've got a funny feeling tilt that our audience probably already know. Yes, that's true. Anyway, how you doing? We're back with another Sitcom Club. Thank you very much indeed to everybody who got in touch with us regarding Lame Ducks. And it was nice to be back. And yeah, we're just keeping things moving here. We've got, I suppose, a bit more of a subject podcast this time rather than a show podcast, even though it is a show podcast. It's a subject bound around a show. We've got a show that's a demonstration of the subject so that we're not just loosely kicking an idea back and forth. We can then cite a specific example, which is the one that we've studied. Okay, so this is how this one started. We know that all our viewers watch Forces TV because that's where all the sitcoms are. And in the summer, you might have seen them repeating Please Sir. And rather nicely, they actually repeated Please Sir series one in its full length, the full 40-minute long episodes. But they also kept it going all the way through to the conclusion of series four. Now, I'm not as familiar with Please Sir as I am with some sitcoms. And upon viewing some series four Please Sir, I sort of twigged, something's wrong here. This doesn't feel right. And I'm not entirely sure why this is, except that there's lots of people who used to be in this who aren't in this now. So what's going on? Please Sir is a really interesting subject for this discussion. The discussion being what happens when a sitcom loses either its principal lead or if it loses a large section of its cast if it undergoes some sort of upheaval, if there's a change in circumstances, whatever it may be. Now, strangely enough, when we're talking about Lame Ducks, that did actually undergo quite a significant upheaval in terms of its plot and its overall atmosphere and surroundings for season two, but it still had all the people in it. Please, Sir is an interesting one because it's one of those funny shows where you've got people who leave during the series rather than it just being suddenly everybody turns up at episode one of series three or four and just says oh so and so has gone off to Australia which is quite often you know what you get in these situations when an actor does not come back to reprise their role in this case it's much more muddled you've got people leaving and then coming back and then you've got people coming in to replace them and then them leaving and then you've got lots of people coming in to replace lots of other people who left but they don't come in for a little while so you've got a huge chasm in the middle and all this kind of stuff so there's lots to discuss there but before we get to please sir we're going to talk for a wee while, about such instances. Sitcoms which not so much have been retooled. We're not talking about things like, I know we've spoken before about, what's that show that you like? Till the one with Jack Doherty and the one that's fundamentally different between series one and series two. Oh, the creatives. <laughs> and I would normally cite Small Potatoes with Tommy Tiernan as, as shows which, you know, you compare series one, series two, and one's got an audience and three walls and the other one hasn't, for example. We're not talking about that in this case. We're talking about situations where you've got a long-running series and maybe one principal actor is not available to continue or decides not to continue. Or you've got a situation where you've got quite a turnover of cast members over the years. And how does a show accommodate that change? How does it cope with that set of circumstances? Some shows cope better than others. Sometimes it can indicate that a show is coming towards its end, but not always. Sometimes there are instances where it's quite the opposite. You've got 
oh yeah, remember that series one where you had like that other character who was in it and then you never saw them again or whatever, or they recast and yeah, that recasting was much better and so on. All manner of instances like that. So let's delve in. Let's delve into the big bag. Let's start with an obvious one. Till, happy days. Yes, well, that's changed through evolution, I will call it. Actually, can we kind of separate out shows that change their lead or leads and shows that change their ensemble? Shows that change their ensemble, I'm thinking Selwyn. Oh, now that is, that's an interesting one, yes. because the, course, Was that the fourth series of Selwyn Froggin? Yes. And suddenly it's, it's him with an entirely new setup. Yes, and the setup is different and by extension then all the supporting characters are different. And we can speculate as to why that perhaps was, but we've picked up Bill Maynard's character and just plonked him right in the middle of a different situation altogether. And suggestion has, has been over the years that that was because there were sort of tensions between the lead actor and the rest of the cast. Series 4 was a bit flat. I don't know. I mean, you're not a huge fan of Selwyn Froggett anyway, are you? Because I think there's a sort of feeling looking back on it now that this is a guy who's, you know, not 100% with it and he's been sort of picked on. He's been made fun of by the rest of his community. Whereas Series 4, the pathos element seems to have just gone and now it's very much pure slapstick. Whereas Happy Days I would compare with Are You Being Served? So Are You Being Served initially is, it's an ensemble, but your lead character, your identification character is James Lucas. In an early episode, his first name is James, not Dick. And then gradually it's become such an ensemble piece. And of course, we have the breakout character, Mr. Humphreys, that Trevor Bannister can leave without actually damaging the show as it's evolved into. And like with Happy Days, Chuck Cunningham's kind of a separate thing that's more what we call you were you saying earlier or that first series when there was that different first series like intelligent baldrick that kind of thing but happy days the ensemble has become important fonzie is the breakout character richie cunningham can leave without actually damaging what the show's grown into whereas shows that change their ensemble like we said with selwyn that tends to be because of some sort of tension i suppose if you want to look at an example of course uh going from Hancock's Half Hour to Hancock. I don't know. It's not always a matter of egos, is it? But I'm just thinking, mostly this might be a matter of egos. I'm not saying that uh, Ron Howard or Trevor Bannister were egomaniacs who couldn't handle, but it's basically a case of, I have other opportunities. Uh, Trevor Bannister was very, very much in demand for his stage work. So it's a case of, it's not really going to change anything. I might as well leave this place and go on to new opportunities. Whereas I guess maybe with changing ensemble, you could more say it's a case of nobody wants to work with X or X doesn't want to work with anybody who gets a bigger laugh than X. Let's unpack a couple of things there because one, I'm always a little bit cautious about just sort of accepting the received wisdom. Even when you hear it coming from like the people who were involved, you always sort of think, is that actually the entire story or the accurate story? Or is this something which has got sort of muddled up in the mist of time or whatever it may be? But as far as Hancock is concerned, I mean, we've all heard the story about Hancock seemingly wanting to, first of all, get away from what he felt were comedic, silly sort of characters, by which he meant, you know, the Kenneth Williams voices. And then he's worried that he's getting sort of cast in the role of a double act. And then he is having a bit of a difference of opinion with his writers as to 
what role he should actually have. Who is Hancock? You know, what is his character? Should he not be out in the big wide world? More like, I don't know, Shaq Tati or whoever. So that seems to be a sort of a gradual process and that's always being driven by Hancock himself. In the case of Are You Being Served, funnily enough, because you mentioned about Trevor Bannister coming out at the end of Series 7. So the suggestion is that when John Inman went to ITV to make Odd Man Out, Croft and Lloyd said, we're not going to make any more Are You Being Served until John Inman can come back. Now, that's one of those things where you hear that and you sort of think, well, is that entirely accurate? Is that absolutely the case? If John Inman's series for Thames had been a huge success, eventually you think maybe Are You Being Served would have just returned without John Inman. But it's much harder to imagine Grace Brothers without John Inman than it is. I would probably extend that to also Captain Peacock and Mrs. Slocum as well, because they're all very much front and center in certain episodes. If any one of those three was missing, then I think you would notice it a lot more. But in terms of, yeah, whenever you see sort of publicity for the show, whatever it may be, it's always going to be John Inman. It's the, the front of the. That also indicates to me that there's a certain amicability about the split as well. There's no sense that, well, he stabbed us in the back. That, you know, it's more a case of we've seen how many zeros were on that paycheck they offered you, can't blame you, and you're a dream to work with. So, in the case of Happy Days, as I understand it, Ron Howard leaving the series was actually a relatively last minute decision. He had decided that obviously he was going to go off and begin to direct films. I think it came around about 1980. I think it was in late 1980. And it was shortly before the new series was ready to go. And then he had indicated that he wasn't going to return, but he might be agreeable to returning on occasion. And that seems to be a bit more sort of out of the blue. And then there's a, a retooling process going on. You notice it in Heidi High. We won't talk a great deal about Heidi High because we talked about Heidi High in a previous cast. And obviously you've got a huge instance of lead character changing in that halfway through its run. But in the case of Richie coming out of Happy Days, I suspect if you were to look at certain episodes of Happy Days immediately after Ron Howard's departure, you would probably see instances of dialogue that would have been intended for him. In Heidi High, for example, when you've got that awkward situation where Leslie Dwyer has recorded his film sequences, but now is not available to appear in the studio recordings. You can, there, there are sections where you can see Ronnie Brody's character as a handyman, janitor around the camp, and he's delivering lines which clearly were intended for Mr. Partridge. If, if you just listen to them and even like the sort of style of delivery and so on, you know exactly who was intended to be saying these lines. When you get to the end of Happy Days, now you, you know all about the tropes and the, the different jargon and what have you that they use. So what is the accepted jargon for... Hey, look, it's our old friend from way back when. What are you doing here after all this time? You know, some people are a bit angry at the very existence of TV tropes. They've never quite worked out why. I'm not saying that there's no good reason for it, but I know some people are a bit annoyed and think it's bad for the discourse, you know. That said, um, yeah, apparently the think that one is called The Bus Came Back. Character Leaves is called Put on a Bus. I don't know how... Uh, Richie Cunningham leaves, but let's say for the sake of argument that he gets on a bus and goes off to the big city for some new opportunity. And then, yes, he comes back for an episode where he's incredibly bitter about his moustache, I assume. I don't know. I tried watching it. I wasn't really paying attention. All I noticed was he was bitter and he had a moustache, and I can only assume that there was some sort of link between the two. 
Maybe uh, he got back and his mom had made him a particularly frothy coffee as a welcome home. And he's got this freaking posh broom under his nose. Oh, no. Have you seen that Mark and Wise sketch where it comes out with the tash and then <laughs> and then Eric just grabs it and pulls it yes. off? I was really hoping that was going to happen with Tom Bosley at some point. There is also the trope called Boss Crash, which I think is when it's somebody leaves and then apparently they, you know later on it turns out they've died. Right. Okay. So that, that I think that's maybe something that you get a bit more maybe with soap operas. And there's been maybe a yeah, difference of opinion behind the scenes. Somebody's... I don't know. Maybe Richie Cunningham died off screen and when he comes back he's incredibly bitter because he's a ghost that would be annoying wouldn't it so frothy coffee if i could pick it up which i can't because i'm a ghost (laughs) it'd make a mess of my mustache but as it happens this is all academic uh and i'm gonna trash my bedroom now i'm going to break from tradition here and in an unusual move we're going to have a brief production meeting during the show which listeners you're all going to get to hear okay right till what do you reckon a future sitcom club cast on the subject of really odd slash half-assed endings to long-running sitcoms inspired by the fact that we went looking for the last episode of happy days found it (laughs) watched it and thought what did we just watch and then discovered that in actual fact this happy days finale had gone out several weeks earlier and then they had a whole batch of them left in the can that they just ran at various times which were all predating what had already happened on screen a couple of months back I can't think of too many other things. I think we've done that. that. Yeah, I think this is Jen. That was it. Yeah. Here's an example of a really neat, clean way of a front man of a series, to an extent, leaving, and then a couple of really bad examples of it. (laughs) Okay, so really good example. It ain't half hot, mum. So it's an ensemble piece, and it's an ensemble piece right from the beginning. But one of the ensemble, in terms of the the camp is George Layton who's playing Bombardier Solomons have you met him I've been in the same room as him I couldn't think of any decent way of introducing myself to him because uh, he was never in Zorro that's that's my main in <laughs> you you have you have a particular penchant for springing it on UK actors the, the <laughs> series that they did in America which they don't believe was shown in the UK actually was shown in the UK yeah I met Jim Carter and my opening thing was I really liked you as Mephisto Palomares in Zorro, and he looked at me and said, was that Sean over here? <laughs> <laughs> Almost as if, oh, oh, I am going to have to have words with my agent. <laughs> so, first couple of series of Eight and a Half Hot Mum, we've got George Layton as somewhat, you know, right up there, top of the bill, alongside Windsor Davis and Michael Bates, and he told the Daily Express a few years ago, he said, I still get recognised from Eight and a Half Hot Mum, but I only did two series. I never felt my role developed properly. I spoke to the co-writer, David Croft, and he said, if you're not happy, you can leave. So I did. Now, as I understand it, there wasn't any tension or bad blood or anything like that. I believe that George Layton and David Croft were good friends and continue to be after Layton had left. And they wrote this into the show. So Layton's character gets demobbed at the end of series two. And that seems to be just a really nice, neat, clean, tidy way of doing things. Compare that, for example, with, say, Laverne and Shirley. I was waiting for that. Laverne and Shirley, we won't go too much into the detail. I know there's going to be very, very detailed guides online as to exactly what happened with the departure of Shirley. But 
given that the show's called Laverne and Shirley and is about a pair of best friends, it would be like, for example, the Liver Birds if Neris Hughes had just left and they hadn't replaced her. It would be somewhat aimless. And that's what you end up with. You end up with a show that's still called Laverne and Shirley, but we only have Laverne. Despite the fact that, yeah, Shirley's name is still in the title of the show and in the opening titles. And yet, ironically, uh, Mark McManus was still in it playing Taggart. <laughs> when we officially launch uh, the drama club, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll come uh, That's to... Jaffa Cakes of Proust, mate. Well, okay. Yeah, we've seen the last few Laverne Shirley's because they are quite fascinating. They are, I suppose, what you would call workmanlike shows. Look, we've got a crew here. We've got scripts which will need to be adapted, but we've committed to this number of shows and we're just going to do these. And it's not like they, they don't acknowledge it. It's not as crass as saying, oh, Shirley's just gone to the bathroom and then she's like in there for like the next four weeks. They, they do actually acknowledge it in the show and what have you. And it, it's clunky, but it's there. And then the show just comes to the end of its run. And obviously it's done and dusted by that point. That at least had the advantage of it being a few episodes away from the end of its run. Freeze Company is a different matter altogether. Freeze Company, there was so much drama going on in that that it's got its own, the true story of Freeze Company. What do, what do you call those films? They just call them TV movies. There you go. But yeah, yes. so yeah, exactly. Yeah, you've got the E with the exclamation mark. You've got the true story about Freeze Company. Here's what really went on behind the scenes and all this kind of stuff. And as we know, Suzanne Summers had a contractual dispute and ended up leaving the series. And she was replaced with not exactly identical characters, but to some degree, you know, the, the characters were not a million miles away from Chrissy. You ended up with Suzanne Summers actually still appearing in some of the episodes in a way that was tacked onto the end. So there she was in a different studio recording scenes on the phone saying, hey guys, what did you get up to this week and what have you? And it's all rather unhappy and, and, and doesn't exactly lend itself to boffo laughs. Are you particularly familiar with Freeze Company, Tim? Not especially. Of course, we've watched a couple of episodes for a couple of different podcasts in the past because I remember watching the first one and being quite down on it and then watching a later one and finding it was much better when it had become its own thing, when there was much more of a sense of who Janet and Chrissy and Jack were and they weren't trying to be uh, Robin and Chrissy and Joe. But I think that's probably the best example of a situation where circumstances involving an actor's contract and agents getting involved and so on. Plus, you're right in the middle of a series, not even to mention the fact that the Ropers were spun off into their own show, which Norman Fell didn't want to do, uh, and then that necessitated another retooling beyond that. That is interesting because the Ropers and George and Mildred are two different natures of spin-off. In Three's Company, it's a matter of recasting, rejigging, bringing in new characters because the Ropers is running alongside Three's Company, which, when we start talking about Please Sir, that's kind of the case here. Whereas, of course, George and Mildred, it's a matter of the format is over, Man About the House has ended, but there's still something to be done with these characters. So let's give them their own series, but it's not a matter of running alongside. So the parent series is over. It doesn't need retooling. Speaking of John Alderton leaving a show... Hey. Have you actually seen the UpChat connection? Oh, yes. What were the circumstances around his leaving that they couldn't even get him to record a few lines of voiceover and had to get somebody doing a John Alderton impression? 
hey, I mean, there's been a lot of examples of it. They couldn't even get Jack Douglas to play himself in a show that he was in. What? 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 Oh, oh yes, Jack- yes. Yeah. <laughs> Upchat is kind of unique, I suppose, in that there's been this radical change to the very nature of Mike Upchat. We had this character called Mike Upchat. Well, his nature is not as you might think it is. Therefore, here's Robin Nedwell. He's still Mike Upchat. It makes sense in context. This is not a question that we can answer today, but I am fascinated by the thinking that goes into each and every circumstance when you've got a situation where an actor leaves a show. You're going to get a replacement actor to come in. Do you keep the character going and have new actor play them and not acknowledge it? Do you have new actor come in, still play that character and do acknowledge it subtly? Or do you have new actor come in and just have them in place of old character and then come up with some sort of explanation as to why that might be? So I'm thinking of a couple of examples. One would be Barry Howard leaving Heidi High and Ben Aris coming in. And in that instance, it's all acknowledged. One character has gone, another character has come in, so on, so on. Uh, Simon Pegg plays a character in, I think, the third series of Faith in the Future. And he's playing a character that had been previously been played by somebody else. And it's acknowledged, they say, oh, do you like his new hair? Because his hair is sort of dyed blonde and what have you. So he looks obviously very different. But otherwise, it's just like, yeah, he's still who he was. Alo Alo, you've got, give me the character. Oh, who's man in Alo Alo? Perfect. Yes. Yeah, David Jansen comes in for the last series. And I f- Hard Day's Night. There you go. And I think, didn't they come up with some sort of convoluted excuse about he'd had plastic surgery or something to explain the fact that he looked a little bit different? Yes, <laughs> I believe so. You know, at one point that was discussed as going to be the explanation of why James Bond looked like George Lazenby. I believe that idea was put forward. Like, well, Spectre will really have a hard time finding you now, James, now that you looked at it. I mean, imagine if they had to do that explanation for every single film. By the time he's Pierce Brosnan, bits are going to be falling off. And also, I mean, diamonds are forever. Well, that didn't take, did it, James? <laughs> Looks like your old musculature has come through. He should have said something like, oh, I didn't keep up the repayments. It's a bit like, you know, it's a bit like those temporary tattoos. <laughs> he had a temporary plastic <laughs> surgery. And, of course, on the buses, which is, again, another example of people always sort of cite Series 7 as, well, Michael Robinson already left, and he doesn't come back to film any final scenes, so Olive's divorce is without any appearance from Arthur. Reg Varney leaves the series halfway through because he's going off to do variety shows for ATV. And that sort of feels quite jarring because it's always been, even though it's it's an ensemble piece, but it's always been Stan that's been sort of front and centre. He is our guy who's navigating all the the hijinks and what have you. And then when he comes out of it, it's got that sort of Laverne and Shirley feel to it then. It, It feels like, yeah, there's something weird. It's an elephant in the room that... Nobody's really acknowledging, and and this is just odd. Just going back to The Bus Came Back, we watched a nice little example of this recently ahead of this show, which was in the Doctor series. Now, the Doctor series, obviously, you've got Barry Evans, who is our principal guy in the first few series. He leaves after Doctor at Large, and then Robin Nedwell comes back in, and he is now sort of top billing in Doctor in Charge. Meanwhile, another character who was in the earlier Doctor series makes a return visit later on. Now, we won't go into any more detail about this because our friend Mumos has already covered this subject on Twitter. So we'll post a link on our Twitter feed 
to Mumosi's tweets from uh, a few weeks back. And he watched this episode and he tweeted about it and explained about the circumstances in which Danny comes back. And Danny is a man out of time, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's an interrogation, a deconstruction of the earlier Doctor series. It's the Watchmen of the Doctor series. It's like, how can we go back to doing things the way we used to now that we know this? And of course, uh, Doctor Down Under showed that the lessons were not learned. Now, you see you and Doctor Down Under. Listeners, every time Tilt sees Dr. Durander, he's always looking at it as if he was watching an episode of Casualty and saying, well, obviously he'd be struck off for that. I mean, they wouldn't even let him anywhere near the patient, given what he just said, let alone what he was doing for the previous 10 minutes. And I'm saying it's not like that. It's a different universe, different world. It's not fantasy either, though. If they can get away with that, then they should not worry about being in trouble with anybody over anything. Could that work as a premise if there were absolutely no consequences was no threat in a, in a show whatsoever <laughs> anybody could just do whatever the hell they want and everything's it's like if fine. the crusty old dean figure wants to get rid of them he can 10 times over per episode and finally before we get to please sir let us reveal for anybody who doesn't know the story i'm sure everybody does i hinted at it at the top of the show which of those shows faulty appearances only fools which of them floated the idea of having a spin-off series without the main character. And the answer to it was? Only Fools and Horses would have spun off into Hot Rod. And supposedly this was going to follow series 5, 1986. And I'm being slightly unfair. When I say without main character, I don't mean to downplay you know the characters of Rodney or Grandad or Uncle Albert, but clearly if you take Del Boy out of the equation and Only Fools and you've got a a big gap there. So the idea was that in the episode Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, Dell actually would have taken up Jumbo's offer and gone to Australia. And then Rodney and Mickey Pierce would have taken over Trotter's Independent Traders, along with Uncle Albert and all the good folk of the Nags Head. And the door seemingly was left open for David Jason to return. But before they even got that far, David Jason decided to stay. Hence, no hot rod. I would have been fascinated to see it, obviously. Till, would you stand on the subject of fan fiction spin-offs? Are they allowed? What? Are they canon? I don't know. If somebody wants to go onto fan fiction website, whatever the hell it is, and write Hot Rod the series, then does that suddenly count? Why don't we tip off Big Finish? <laughs> There's a gap in the market for you. <laughs> Before you inevitably get round to virtual murder, just one last stop. Before you... Uh hit the soil beneath the barrel. Okay, so, the main event. What we're here for. Please, sir. Please, sir begins in 1968. It's been going for three series. It's got 34 episodes under its belt. And then, September 1971, a funny thing happens. Because Please, sir comes back and, in the same month, a spin-off of Please, sir arrives on the screen, which is the Fen Street Gang, which itself is going to rack up three series. Which is on Amazon Prime over here. That's weird, isn't it? Yeah. I don't think it's even like BritBox, because we, we, we have BritBox. Oh, it's now on IMDb TV, apparently. You, you can watch it free with ads. Uh, and it would appear that all four series are on there. But there's only three series of Fen Street Gang, isn't there? Maybe they brought it back. <laughs> hey, it's not... didn't come along with Mind Your Language Season 4, did it? In 86. They didn't make another one of those as well, did they? It says here that the first episode of... Season 4 is An Englishman's Home, so if you want to look that up. No, definitely three seasons. It says seasons. 
on wiki. Okay, where does, for 73. where does an Englishman's Home then come? All right, an Englishman's Home is Series 3 opener. Well, there's the thing. This is not as interesting for the listeners as it is for us, so let's move on. So, September 71, if you like, please saw Fantastic because you've got two lots of it now at weekends. However, one of the shows is a bit different to the way that you remember it. John Alderton has decided to leave the show. He's about to go off and appear in a BBC sitcom, My Wife Next Door, with Hannah Gordon, and of course he's also going to be appearing in Upstairs Downstairs. But he does come back for the first couple of episodes of the series, and he's also given a tangible reason for why he leaves. He leaves because 5C have graduated, 5C have gone off on their travels to become the Fen Street Gang. He says, oh, you know, it's not the same round here, part of the old gang, and so he leaves. So effectively, that gives us two different types of leaving scenario, though, doesn't it? Bernard Hedges is gone. He's got on the bus. And Class 5C have spun off. So it's unique. I can see why you picked this to talk about. We do get a couple of instances of actual crossovers in these early weeks, because even while the Fen Street gang are doing their own thing, we do briefly see Maureen and Eric in the first few episodes of Placer Series 4. However, John Alderson has gone, 5C have gone. Now we've got a situation where we've lost both our headline actor, character, and also a large part of our ensemble. I can't think of too many other instances in which this may have happened. There might have been American shows I'm overlooking, perhaps. If anybody can think of any other examples, not just of this set of circumstances, but any other examples, of course, of sitcoms where lead actor or big part of the crew have departed. Tweet us at The Sitcom Club or messages on Facebook, The Sitcom Club. But I'm struggling to think of any other examples where we've had a significant turnover of the ensemble and also a principal lead character as well in such clearly defined separate entities as this. Yeah, to be scrupulously fair, though, John Sanderson... Derek Geiler, Richard Davis, Eric Chitty, Noel Howlett, they're all still there, and it's reasonable to assume that there would be affection for these characters, so you're not going completely in the dark into an entirely new phase of the show. There is enough there that I can see that would say, yeah, this is enough continuity between cast switches that this is actually a safe move. Yeah, I think that's fair enough, but put it this way, please, sir's principal concern is 5C, and all the other characters are concerned with 5C. And so taking 5C out and taking 5C's teacher out, I said this to you before we started the recording, I said it feels like if Grace Brothers had returned one series and they'd said either the men's or the ladies' department has gone, so they're not there anymore. And then it suddenly feels like half a sitcom. What's odd about this is that you'd think that even with... John Alderton appearing in a couple of episodes at the beginning, and your occasional appearance from a graduated 5C member, you'd sort of think that there's going to be instant replacements for those characters, but that's not actually how this works. This series goes on for 21 episodes, and it's got a sort of meandering path to it, where if you sort of land halfway through and you look at it, you think, oh, well, clearly that's replacement for him, and they are the replacement for them, and so on and so on. But when you watch the full series in order, then it doesn't work like that. It takes a a curious sort of path, and eventually by the end of it, it gets to somewhere where you think if there had been a series five, 
yeah, they've got the component parts now, but it takes a long time to get there. So first of all, we've got Glenn Edwards coming in as the notorious Mr. Dix, spelt D-I-X. And he is a PE teacher and somewhat of a bully, and he's not very popular. And he's only there for a couple of weeks. So I suspect that he was intended to be a short-term character. But he is dispensed with by a chap who comes in called David Fitchett Brown, who strikes an unusual alliance with Potter because Fitchett Brown is ex-army, even though he's quite a young guy. And he's, would you say, till one of those young groovers? He's got one of those cars, hasn't he? The drive without a top on it. Yes, he's Mr. Groovy, the groovy teacher. He comes in and you're sort of thinking, yeah, I see. Okay, this is going to be effectively sort of replacement for Hedges. But we still don't have a 5C in place. And it takes us 10 episodes to get something equating to a replacement 5C in place. Actually, can I just talk a little bit more about the replacement? You know how I'm obsessed with generational switches and also what sitcoms tell us about social mores. Bernard Hedges has been Duffelcoat band the bomb trad jazz, don't you think, as a student? Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now we have the new teacher. Only needs to be, what, maybe five years younger? And he's been a student at Vietnam rallies and... You know, the whole psychedelic thing has been happening while he's a student. So while it, we are back to the original police setup of the younger teacher who's a little bit more ear to the ground in terms of youth culture than other teachers, in some ways he could make Hedges look the way Hedges looks compared to the other teachers. He could make Hedges look slightly old-fashioned. And it's just because the pace of cultural change has been so rapid in the 60s that men who are only a few years apart will have had very different experiences and will present themselves very differently. Is he wearing a tassel jacket or something? He's definitely wearing something like... Yeah, you know, there's, there's, yeah there's bees involved. Yeah. He could find Bieber without actually having to look it up on a map. So we've got hints early on that there's going to be disruption to Fen Street and there's some talk of it becoming comprehensive and there are instances of interaction with another school and eventually we discover that this other school, Weaver Street, is going to be absorbed into Fen Street. And so it's taken us nine episodes to get to that point. And then episode 10 is when we've got this group, Weaver Street, plonked into the show. They get a sort of immediate reaction from the teachers and they're thinking, oh, what have we got here? This, this shower of whatever. Because we don't have the explicit tag on, on, on the show anymore. So it seems that it took 10 episodes to get to the point where you've got all of your bits and pieces in place and then all of a sudden Fitchett Brown is gone. His character doesn't hang around. His character is there for about sort of half a dozen or so episodes and then he disappears. And we've got a couple of other actors come in, Bernard Holly and Vivian Martin come in as additional teachers. But it seems that we never actually get a proper sort of actual replacement for Hedges. Nobody ever comes in and says, I am Mr. Hedges' replacement. Here I am, and I'm here to stay, and so on. As far as the new class is concerned, how can we put this politely, Till? Okay, um, so you're more familiar with police uh, than I. So could you take me through the personalities of the original 5C? 5C, we've got Eric Duffy, Peter Cleel, who is the guy who you always sort of suspect has got maybe like a wrench or something in his back pocket and is just ready to use it. 
you always sort of wonder why is he not in Borstal, and you know what is going to be the, the tipping point that actually sends him there. You've got Frankie Abbott, who's David Barry, who is the the BSer. He's a fantasist. He's the one who's always sort of bigging himself up and what have you, but is essentially sort of full of it. Lovely Dennis Dunstable, Peter Denyer, who is the one everybody sort of tries to look after and what have you, because he's, I guess, he's the most sort of vulnerable character. He's he's very much a sort of dreamer, not really entirely with it, but he's very lovable and it's impossible to get angry with him, basically, for that reason. You've got Penny. Spencer, and then later on Carol Hawkins as Sharon. And Sharon is, I suppose you would say, uh, she's a sort of glamorous girl who's there and she's Eric's other half and what have you. Uh, and you've also got Peter Craven, played by Malcolm McPhee. He probably patterns himself after Alfie. Is that a fair comparison? I don't remember that character. <laughs> so there's a reason I asked you to do this rather than taking it on myself. Sharp-suited young dude. He's with it, but when he says something, you sort of believe him where you don't believe it coming from Frankie Abbott. Also, you have got Maureen, Liz Gebhardt. Prim and proper, uh, very devout Christian, and she's also mooning after Mr. Hedges uh, repeatedly as well. So that's, I guess, our core 5C. And all of the characters have got very clearly identifiable traits, and we've obviously got to know them over the previous 34 episodes plus a film and we're still seeing them in Fen Street Gang and what have you. So it's a little bit unfair really to expect another group to then come in and immediately fulfill all of those big character roles and have the same sort of impact but at the same time it, it, I don't know there's just something it doesn't feel right this group that comes in. There's definitely a girl who flirts with fidget spinner in the same way that Penny Spencer would sometimes flirt with Bernard Hedges. But because the actress is that much younger and actually looks like a schoolgirl, it becomes a bit more uncomfortable. There's a guy who's always playing the guitar, and that seems to be his characteristic. He plays the guitar. We do have a little bit more characterization. There's a girl called Celia. It's meant to be Indian. Uh, the actress was actually Yugoslav extraction, but anyway... And she has this girl who's constantly mooning over her. So it's kind of like, okay, girl crush, that's kind of a characterization thing. And I think that's what it's meant to be. I don't think Esmond and Larby are trying to deal with any sort of LGBT plus stuff. I think it's just meant to be a massive girl crush. That's kind of a characterization we haven't seen before. And then we have the stupid one. We initially see him not as part of Fen Street. Uh, there's a truancy problem that's affecting, what was it called? Vine Street? Weaver Street. Weaver Street. And you know who's causing that problem? Robin Asquith. There you go. His performance actually helps ground things a bit. He gives as good as he gets against Mr. Fidget. So we, we introduced this character, and I can't remember the character's name, but he's kind of meant to be stupid and a bit of a bruiser. He comes across a bit like a Gumby or whichever character it is in Monty Python who falls out of a chair during an interview. I'm falling out of my chair, Brian. And the poor guy. I do, actors get too much credit and too much blame. I think we need to blame somebody in the whole development, somebody behind the scenes, somebody in the production, maybe the director. He's acting pantomime stupid, I guess you would say. It's like you can see the gap between the mask and the actor's face. You can sort of see him go, and now act stupid. 
And I also get a feeling that Esmond and Lobby are kind of written out. They're tired. We get the don't tell him Pike joke, but worse. What's your name? Don't tell him it's Terry Stringer, Terry. What? Was that what they were thinking of when they drew all those uh, inaccurate quotes? Wasn't it in the corridors of Television Centre? By the way, fun fact. You know that character who's the Gumby? His character name is actually Godper. Ah, I knew there was a character in it called Godper, but I didn't know it was him, right. Okay. I would say that the girl who's mooning over a friend, Daisy, played by Rosemary Faith, I think she's probably the strongest character out of the new group that comes in. Yeah, well, she has a characteristic I don't think we've seen before, and she picks it up and runs with it. Whereas a lot of the other Wafer Street gang, especially Guitar Block and Bobby, they're just unpleasant. Because, I mean, the thing is, okay, you always suspect that Eric is going to pummel your face in, but he's also good company to be with as well, before it gets to that point in the evening. Whereas the new intake, a lot of them just seem like noisy little bleeders that you just want to clip around the head. Again, could we say, is it worth it really? Could we say that their childhoods would have been slightly different, maybe slightly less deprived? They're a bunch of entitled boomers who should be pushed into the sea <laughs> with sticks, pointed sticks. Snap a pool cue and push all the boomers into the sea before they <laughs> vote to take away everything they had from future generations. I had a disagreement with somebody about whether any of these uh, generational breakdowns were of any use whatsoever. I think they are kind of useful talking about sitcoms, talking about Reginald Perrin as a member of the silent generation. But yes, in other areas, they're probably not that useful. We have, by episode 10, we've got our new class and we've sort of got our new teacher, although he isn't going to be around for too long, but we will have other teachers coming in and what have you. Meanwhile, Does he get a leaving? Does he get a proper reason for going? Not that I'm aware, no. He just vanishes. He I believe so. He just Chuck disappears. However, we're about to have the bus came back. See, I've just hoovered up that trope that I just learned from you about half an hour ago. I've just hoovered it off of you and now I'm using it myself. You see what I've done there? So the bus is coming back and it's going to contain 5C because 5C is going to make a return appearance. But it's movie Sharon. Because Carol Hawkins wasn't Sharon before at all in the TV series, was she? Yes, no, you're absolutely right. Penny Spencer is Sharon at the end of series three. So that's absolutely correct. But also, I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but I'm going to. What are the rules for film storylines being canon and you're expected to then incorporate them into the overall television storyline. But the thing is, okay, yeah, on one hand, Carol Hawkins is now Sharon. And if you've seen the film, then you know that already. So when she appears here, you're not saying, who's that? Never seen her before. I've no idea who that is. At the same time, Hedgie's got married. Okay. And that's the reason, part of the reason why he's left the show, because he's got a new life and what have you. Now, the actress and indeed the character who... He's married to, in Please Sir, is the same as in the film, but the circumstances in which they meet are completely different. So what are we supposed to believe now? Because we're either accepting that the film universe is correct and everything that happens and it happens on the TV, or suddenly there's a bit of retconning going on in some areas, but not in all of them. Next time I know for sure that Grant Morrison is walking around the streets of Glasgow, I will get in touch with you, Gary, and you'll have to then seek out Grant Morrison, come up and say, excuse me, Mr. Morrison, can you explain the concept of hypertime in regard to sitcom movies and sitcom television? 
and maybe he'll explain it. They brought in this thing called hypertime, which is basically different timelines can sometimes line up and then break off, uh, and that's why things change. So I'd really have to watch all of Police uh, and the movie several times to exactly work out what's happened here. Okay, well, well, we'll wait. You see, you can almost reconcile Man About the House, the movie, with what we later know about Mildred's maiden name by saying that if your maiden name was Tremble, it might be understandable that you would tell some people it was Asquith instead. Why are we supposed to accept that, that Mr. Lucas has changed his name from James to Dick? He's embarrassed by it, so maybe he's filled out a form on the first day and put James instead of Dick, because everywhere else his works have been jokes. And then eventually comes out that it is Dick, just as Mrs. Slocum's first name. I think, is it Mary in some cases, but she prefers to be called Betty? Yes. See, I've been reading the trivia sections on the IMDb for every episode of Are You Being Served that has a trivia section. So my brain is primed for that. Right now, it's not primed to untangle the different timelines. There's definitely a Doctor Who story where the Doctor recalls the events of the first Dalek story, or maybe the second one, but the events he recalls are more like the movie than the TV series. That's been seen more often, so it's still fresh in the minds of the writers. Okay, I'm going to break the rule again. Second time, same show. I'm going to have a quick production meeting, and we're going to let all the listeners in on it, okay? And also this time, I'm going to ask the listeners for their opinion of this. So tell, even if your answer to this is no, your answer can be overridden if the public say that they want us to do this, okay? What do you think about us doing a series, a spin-off series of the sitcom club entirely about are you being served? One series per podcast and the film. I have no problem with this. I quite like the idea of doing one series per podcast because it means we're not taking up too much real estate. There's probably a non-zero number of other podcasts that would be dedicated to Are You Being Served. But if we do a little series, a mini-series, and our selling point is we're bringing the sitcom club style of over-examination to Are You Being Served, yes, I think that's I would I would definitely be up for that. Okay, cool. I'm thinking that until we get to maybe series eight or so, I think that it's probably reasonable that any character development that's going on is exactly that. And probably then, when you get to the last few series and so on, I can't remember what the name, again, you can tell me the name of the trope. It's when you suddenly fundamentally alter a character's traits or just their overall sort of you know mindset in order to then fit the storyline. So Captain Peacock suddenly he had a gambling habit, for example, which we never knew about before, that kind of thing. But up until series seven or eight or so, then yeah, I think that you can always sort of say, look, now you see the way that Mr. Humphreys is here. Yeah, so to the way was what we're here, actually going so to do is sort of build up biographies for all of these characters. I say that sounds like a heap of fun. Okay, 2021, ladies and gentlemen, there it is. And also we need a name for it as well. So any suggestions for a name for the show, hit us at The Sitcom Club on Twitter, The Sitcom Club on Facebook. Speaking of uh, sitting down and examining series, we have a pilot, don't we? Yes, we do, actually, don't we? Yes. So shall I prepare the pilot? Uh, We don't know what we're going to do next on Sitcom Club. I don't know if there will be any more Sitcom Clubs for the rest of this year. We're kind of doing them when it's convenient and we're both healthy, which doesn't always line up. But it just so happens that Gary, myself, and our friend Tyler decided to look at season two. It is a season. It was what it was called on the official paperwork. Season two only 
of Doctor Who. And this will be a podcast that we call Knights of Jaffa. Because there's a season two episode called The Knight of Jaffa. It's quite amusing. Keeps the brand. Let's everybody know. That will be coming out sooner rather than later. I'm not going to be saying it's going to come out in the next week or so, but ears peeled. I just want to briefly go back to that and see when you say when we're both healthy and what have you, I don't, I don't want to cause panic. We're only talking about like if one of us has like a bout of gout or something like that. I, mean, nothing wrong I have all these kind of horrible, weird inflammations that make me scream when I do athletic feats like standing and stuff like that. So, yes. And we never mentioned Rising Damp, which you could actually call a modular cast, in that people go out and people go in and it doesn't disturb it. If they'd all come out, that would be one thing. We already had done a, a show called Recasting uh, long before. Maybe there's still a little bit of meat left on these bones that uh, in a few years' time, we might come back to it. The very last thing I was going to say, but please, sir, about a couple of things. One is that it's nice that we do get a moment where you've got 5C meeting Weaver Street. It's nice that you've actually got that on the screen, the two universes collide. Obviously, if police had gone on and on and on, then that would be more significant in a sort of Doctor Who sense. The other thing I was going to say was that Series 4 is a really odd curiosity. And if you see it pop up on Forces TV again in the future, or if it pops up on a streaming service, or if you've got the DVD or whatever, give it a go. It's fascinating, to be honest. It's really interesting to see a series which appears to be in search of something and never quite finds it, but has a lot of elbow room in which to do it. 21 episodes is a long time when a show has gone directionless. Most of the occasions that we're talking about here, particularly when like a, a major character leaves, maybe there's like one series of six episodes or fewer. But in this case, this is quite a, a roller coaster ride. We this. came back to our counterintuitive phase, didn't we, really? Hey, everybody, the sitcom club is doing Please Sir Series 4 only. <laughs> I think we've had a good old gab today. I've enjoyed this topic. And now we've actually got a plan for the Sitcom Club in 2021. Well, hey, yeah, 2021, the year that everybody is just waiting to happen. That's really where I think really the 20s are going to begin. Yeah, the 20s haven't started yet, but when they do, you can look forward to the Sitcom Club does Are You Being Served? This fits in with your usual theory, though, regarding Top of the Pops, because, yeah, usually when we're sort of transitioning from one decade to another with Pops, Every decade takes a couple of years to find itself. Yeah, before 1980 it becomes... seems to be generally okay, but we watched a few from 1970, and they're fascinating. Quite a lot of acts that we had heard of but didn't really last into the 70s. Acts who we think of as being purely 60s acts who go on to like 71 or maybe in 72, but 1970 editions seem to be the ones that have that peculiar flavour of, is it still the 60s? Have the 70s started? What's the sound of the 70s? Where are we going? And we've watched, of course, there have been a few from 1990. And there's been at least a couple of editions where it's like, I don't recognise any of these people. So, thank you again for listening to today's edition of the Sitcom Club. Don't forget you can find every single previous Sitcom Club at thesitcomclub.com. And of course, you can also find all of those and all the Jaffas and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other hours of top podcast material at podnose.com you can find us at the sitcom club on twitter and facebook and we will be back very soon i'm sure we'll be back this year somewhere if not the sitcom club then 
Positive definitely has to be some sort of Christmas special from us. Oh, yes. So stay following us on social media to find out all the details about that. In the meantime, I've been Gary. Till you've been yourself. And this has been the Sitcom Club. <laughs>